Mavine, a contemporary ghost story, written and narrated by Roy Baldwin. Chapter 7 Yes, madam, I can confirm you have been put on the list of eligible drivers, so you will have absolutely no problems. I'll print out a copy of the receipt. Here. The hotel receptionist, on her own at a busy desk, appeared to be somewhat irritated by the three times repeated question, whilst Victoria was totally unaware of the large queue of business people building up behind her in a hurry to check out and get on the road as business people do. But she was determined to be sure that her change of plan had no extraneous glitches, still smarting from being fined 500 euros six months before whilst driving Abby's uninsured wreck of a Fiat Panda through Delft. As she wandered towards the breakfast area, she spotted Abby coming in through the main door, walking briskly towards her, wondering why her friend had disappeared into thin air when she awoke, obviously in a hurry for some reason. I thought you'd gone swimming. Had breakfast without me then, she called out, hastily shoving car key of the beast into her jeans pocket. Sorry, Chuck. I've got to get on. I really want to do some work in the central library again, for it gets busy and then, as you know, she continued in a dryly emphatic tone, I'm having lunch with Linton Gray, and before you start asking with that sharp brain, if he asks, I shall say that you've made progress with Evelyn West and are weighing up the options. But we will, of course, be occupied professionally with his etchings that he wants a business valuation on. Yes, purely business, Victoria replied, grinning. So are you joining us for lunch at the Ship and Mitre? Linton has booked a table in the smart restaurant upstairs. He has an account, of course. I'm sure you will be allowed to bring Julian. Er, uh, no, Victoria began having to suddenly think on her feet, because she had forgotten to ask Julian where they were meeting. Damn! And she had other ideas and wanted the beast. I'm heading for uh, the pier head, she said confidently, the first thing that came into her head. I shall meet Julian there. He's coming on the bus. Bus? Well, I suppose writers aren't are always skint, aren't they? Anyway, I shall catch up with you later in the day, give you a ring. Look forward to it, Victoria replied, then gave Abby a big hug. Have a great day. Don't do anything. Yes, that will be probably be doing. No, I won't. See you later. Have fun breathing in the sea air. Ferries are always romantic on first dates, Abby shouted back jauntily, skipping out of the entrance in a respectably black-fitted trouser suit a sight really to be seen. It's not a date, Victoria tried to mouth back. She had other ideas, but she did have to admit she was quite looking forward to seeing Julian again. But it was his sharp research mind rather than his body that was the real focus of her plan. She had decided overnight to visit Osbrick Hall after all. She simply had to go, especially after all that family enunciation yesterday and would drive the beast there herself. Having Julian, with his deep knowledge of the 19th century, would be a big bonus. She would simply ask him if he wanted to go for the ride out to the country, and then casually drop in that, well, she was becoming the owner of a big mansion, and would he like to come with her and see it? She was aware that it might upset Abby not telling her, but didn't want Abby discouraging her again. Ultimately, she had to face down her family dilemmas and secrets herself, and was impatient to break the voodoo of never having crossed the threshold. Plus, it was obvious, Abby had the hots for Linton Grey, and keeping him on board would also be beneficial. Okay, she perused, dishing out some fruit into a bowl and picking up a plate of scrambled egg on toast. It was risky, but... She simply had to do it now, not later. However, there remained the problem of meeting Julian. Hi, Julian, she said quietly into her phone earpiece, waving to the waiter for another Earl Grey tea. 
Ah, Victoria, he answered immediately. I'm glad you phoned because we never... No, she interrupted impatiently. That's why I called. Would you like to meet me at the pier head, say, in an hour? Fine. Always up for a little ferry, cross the Mersey, reminiscing. See you later at the waterfront, opposite the Lyra buildings. I'll get the bus. Victoria laughed loudly down the phone. Sorry? Nothing, Julian. Uh, just thought of something amusing about the searchers. Look forward to seeing you then. Yeah, me too. Bye. Yes, she uttered loudly as three businessmen glared across whilst dousing her scrambled egg with salt and pepper. Victoria certainly hadn't counted on the difficulty parking or the volume of traffic down there, although she was confident in the BMW, having learnt to drive in Andromeda's large old commune Land Rover in Holland. Getting increasingly irritated going up and down Water Street five times in a continuous circle, she suddenly spotted a van leaving a parked meter and outmanoeuvred a mini with a deft swing in. Yes, size does matter sometimes. Looking up at the clock on the tall and magnificent Georgian office building opposite, she realised she was going to be late, and after retrieving a couple of hours worth of meter change, dashed down the road, finally grasping the railings and panting madly over the edge of the murky fast-running water. Where on earth was he? She peered up at the clock on the top of the Liver building behind. She was actually half an hour early. Breathing a sigh of relief, she reapplied some lipstick and contemplated what she was wearing. She would have liked to wear a new Kate Spade short red dress and leopard skin jacket that she'd managed to stuff into the case, but decided to stick to her usual smart casual best skinny jeans, ankle boots and black leather jacket as she had no idea how decrepit and dirty it would be inside the house. Grateful too that she'd pulled on a thick jumper, as it was decidedly breezy and chilly on the waterfront. But then, when she thought back, it always was. The surroundings were totally different from what she remembered as a child. Everywhere looked very touristy, but nice. Gazing up again, the 18-foot metal cormorant and famous historical symbol of Liverpool City perched on each tower of the equally famous and splendid Liver building. Her mind flashed back to the former 1970s TV series The Liver Birds, depicting the daily mishaps of scatty female flatmates like her and Abby, which her mother was constantly watching repeats of as a child. And even then she always had a whiskey by the side of her. It was originally supposed to be an eagle, you know, in King John's time, a deep voice sounded out, making a jump. Hey, don't fall in. I wouldn't really want to leap in there. She turned to see a tall and smiling grey-haired Julian striding up briskly beside her, a giant scarf blowing about madly in the breeze. He had old-fashioned brown brogues on that fortunately matched her own smart casual look albeit distinctive, with tight-fitting, faded blue jeans and a barleycorn tweed jacket over a brown check shirt. Obviously he liked that style, or only owned the one. He was cleanly shaved, smelling of something expensively pleasant, as he bent down to kiss her once, twice, and then three times on the cheek. Mmm, Dutch style, how nice, Julian, she proffered jauntily, noting from his expression that he caught a whiff of her favourite Joe Malone perfume. Good start, but she needed to check his brain. Sorry, Julian, you were saying about the liver birds. Which, as hoped, he immediately provided her with an unwavering two-minute diatribe of their histories, from the original King John Liverpool Charter in the 13th century to the present day. And she learned there were other liver birds in the city too, a fact she didn't know at all. <clears throat> so historical brain seemed to be in focus. Excellent. Coffee? Well, actually, I wondered if you might like to go for a ride in the country, sort of accompany me on a little childhood reminiscing of West Lancashire. Haven't got my timetable with me, although I do know there are regular buses from somewhere around here out to Ormskirk. I'm driving, no problem, and I'll treat you to lunch. Car is just up the road, Actually, better hurry before the meter runs out. 
Excellent, Victoria, why not? Let's go. They set off quickly towards Water Street, and she immediately hooked her arm, arm into his like last time, a habit she decided she definitely was fast warming to. She rather enjoyed being called Victoria for a change. The only other person who had always used her formal full name, apart from Aunt Evelyn the day before, had been her father. I see you've got over the old shakes and jitters then, he said, and grinned across at her. Definitely, she retorted, as they began to gabble away at all kinds of nonsense, as he described his recent days researching into the Sherlock Holmes depths of London and 21B Baker Street, and probing her for wider scientific insights to bring the two together into a new fictional variant. Five minutes were left on the meter. Over there, she pointed, as he began to head for the sporty Renault Clio, parked behind. No, this one, Julian, pressing the door unlock. She could read his expression beautifully. It was supposed to be a Ford Fiesta, but I ended up with the Constellation Prize after a booking muddle. He roared, laughing. She liked his laugh, as his blue eyes definitely twinkled wickedly behind those thick lenses. They drove off smoothly merging into the busy traffic, though she was glad she had pre-programmed Bursco into the navigation system, remembering where Osbrick Hall was relative to the canal there. I really like driving the beast. The automatic is so responsive, she muttered happily over to him. The beast? She relayed about Abby liking to ride big beasts, and that set him off again. So where is your friend today? I assume she found you at the ship of Mitre. Oh yes, Abby is very much into art and design and taking herself off to more galleries and museums and stuff, you know, that sort of thing. I get a little bored with it. Actually, he continued, I like a lot of art, especially 19th century, and do have a number of pre-Raphaelite prints, Rossetti, you know, that sort of stuff. Couldn't afford the originals. I expect Abby is very knowledgeable about that period, isn't she? Yes, I'm sure. Oh, look, over to the left. Those huge warehouses along the docks. They used to store sugar and cotton and tobacco, didn't they? But they've been renovated into what appears to be very upmarket flats. Deciding that she needed to get his mind off Abby quick. Good job she was off on a jaunt. He was peering into his iPhone as she pondered which girlfriend was probably texting him when he immediately smirked. Yes, tell you about the dock history in a minute. Just found a great local history site on the net about the boat people who lived on the canal. References to archives and parish records going back centuries. But you said in the pub that you weren't related to boat people, were you? Till she met Aunt Evelyn, she wasn't, but decided to skirt over that. No, farming people who worked on the land although there is probably some intermixed stray lineage that veered onto the canal at some stage. Yes, I'm sure. Lots of intermixing went on in the 19th century when the canal and the Industrial Revolution were in their heyday, he replied knowingly with a grin. Some legitimate, but a lot not so legitimate. That made her think. Were all their forebears married legally? In fact, she actually knew nothing of her own parents' marriage for that matter. It was never mentioned. She assumed the deed took place at the local parish church, but her stepmother was American. And where the hell was she now? She neither knew nor cared. But it made her realise, even after Aunt Evelyn's remarkable unveiling of family facts, she still knew precious little else about her own background. She decided to find somewhere to stop and tell Julian where they were going, and indeed why. Well, certainly not all of it, but enough, so he wasn't under the illusion. They were off for a joyride around Ormskirk. They continued further, along highways and through the conurbation she and Abby had driven into yesterday, but no motorway this time. She would take the old road, more scenic, although again, not unexpectedly, there was a lot more build-up of housing than when she last remembered. But eventually the urban commuter picture cleared, and the familiar flatter green plains, farmland and rural idyll she remembered as a child reappeared. She felt her breathing increase. 
partly with anticipation that they were not far from Aldsbury Hall, but also with an unexpected easing of tension again, same as the day before near Appleby Lodge. An inner relaxation and comfort was enveloping her, like she had come home with a deep sense of belonging, which as a child she had never experienced, ever until the day before. She suddenly glanced nervously through the rear mirror. Nothing, thank goodness. What would she do now with Julian there? She hadn't thought of that. How stupid. Then spotted a little chef cafe sign on the right and pulled into the parking lot with a deft swerve, jolting Julian from his iPhone perusing again. Coffee? Hmm, good idea. I'm getting thirsty. Actually, Julian, I want to tell you where we're really going. He looked at her quizzically. Now I am intrigued. More mysteries. Great. After you, Victoria. Once inside and seated at an end quiet table, she ordered two large coffees and a lemon drizzle cake to share. It was too early for the whole one. Her mind had gone into his usual scientific synthesis mode again, weighing up the known data and juggling how to present the facts in the most economical, logical and clarifying way. But there were too many bits and pieces she didn't understand, nor could knit together into any sort of sensible or meaningful hypothesis. Talking of women in purple shawls was definitely off the agenda. Julian would only think she was an escapee from a secure institution. So she had to focus on the key objective, the basics of Orsbrick Hall, minus inheritance money of course, and then allow the information to tickle his historical research fancy and see if he pours forth as easily as his knowledge of 19th century Liverpool and London. The more she pondered, the more of a silly long shot and fruitless escapade this would likely be. Oh well, straight to the point. He was silent, waiting for her to start, poking his fork into the cake. When I said earlier about my family working on the land, well, that was only partly true. What does partly mean? Julian replied, pulling off a large piece of cake, gently manoeuvring it to his mouth before it fell off at the last post, and she giggled. Okay, it, well, it means that they didn't just work on the land, they actually owned it. They were landowners. Like farmers? No, more than that. The Mackenzies were 19th century local landed gentry who had made money for generations back from exploiting the sciences and engineering of the time, the royal equivalent of the rich shipping merchants of Liverpool. Now she really had caught his attention. You mean they were entrepreneurial, industrial revolutionaries? Original steampunks even? She laughed again, gazing intently into his glasses, quietly as the waitress came over and topped up their coffee. Yes, what a beautifully quaint summary, Mr. Endersby Finnis. Going by your name, it sounds like you should be this side of the table saying this. He smiled, not taking his eyes off her, and then supped his coffee gently. No, I'm just a mongrel from all kinds of social detritus. Not a squeak of a baronetcy anywhere near my forebears. I'm sure, although I've been so busy researching everyone else in the 19th century, I never thought to ask before World War II. Merely a case of a Miss Finnis being a stroppy independent lady and still is, marrying a Mr Endersby, who sadly passed on soon after, but begetting me in between. Anyway, never mind me. So go on, it's like waiting for the next episode of 24. You don't have to now, I've got the full DVD collection, she replied softly, tapping his hand gently. I only found out about my family yesterday. I've inherited the estate, and that's where we are going, to see Osbeck Hall for the first time. He lowered his coffee, took off his glasses, and rubbed them gently on the serviette. Really? Really. I don't know what to say, except I don't know what to say. I think I should pay the bill, and we go and find your piece of history. What sort of state is it in? She opened her bag, pulling out the cigarette case, and opened it up, displaying the large brass key for the front door. 
Not sure, but the impression I got from my Aunt Evelyn, the only other remaining member of my family, is a bit run down. But I need your historic research mind to help me unravel some, well, secrets, issues. Tell you later if that's all right. I think it was auspicious that we bumped into each other. Hmm, yes, know what you mean. I've been thinking about that since we met too. But apart from my brilliant mind, you may need the old body a little too. She looked wide-eyed. Time to move on. He was getting personal at juggernaut speed. Maybe not so great an idea right then. He caught the zeitgeist and laughed. No, Victoria, I have another practical skill. Building restoration. Used to do voluntary work for the National Trust for relaxation, usually between girlfriends. They have a maniacal compulsion for con 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 conservation, heritage and do-it-yourself. Comes in useful when you're a landlord of a listed building as well. The tenants would wreck my place if let, so I practice preemptive strikes. She smiled. Two benefits now for the price of one. Definitely fortuitous. We can't be far now to Bursco. Just check my GPS map, peering again at his iPhone. Bad addiction, this. Must cut it down. Couple of miles left, but where is Osbrick Hall from here? Can't see anything on the map, he replied, looking puzzled. I'll know once we get there. Ready? She was beginning to feel hot and bothered as they walked slowly up and over the iron girder bridge. The old rickety wooden bridge she remembered that once swung across to let the coal barges through had, as Sergeant Hargreaves predicted, been replaced by a modern architectural monstrosity, under which leisure canal boats busily sailed. She squinted in the bright sunlight as they stood on the towpath, looking up and down the once familiar terrain she used to play on as a child and walk along to Annie's. The environment was certainly a lot more pleasant, the canal looking like it had been dredged and widened in places, no old bicycles sticking out of the water, weeds and algae gone and definitely no dead pigs, the tannery having long been closed down and demolished. A flashback made her body shudder for a moment as she peered at the reeds, the same ones she had once seen and been terrified of fifteen, but nothing. Everywhere was tranquil and calm, Brown-billed ducks quacking as a male slowly swam in the clear water towards them, expecting bread. She could even see a shoal of small fish nearby in the shallower edge. The high hedgerows were thick, impenetrable and covered in ivy and berries as she tried to remember. I told you there was nothing on the map. I thought you said you knew where it was, Julian ventured, cleaning his glasses on his scarf, flapping in the way to see the map properly. I did, she uttered impatiently. Just need to think. Oops, sorry, Victoria, he replied, struggling in the light breeze with putting the map flatter over a log. Uh, my mistake. I've been looking the wrong side of the canal. Got my north and south mixed up. Stupid orientation of the way it's printed. I can see an area now with a building labelled Hall. Some woods and outbuildings. Mmm, quite a large plot. And... Here, give it to a scientist. Men, she shouted, laughing and snatching it from him. Immediately that confirmed her suspicion, and her memory of eight years of age came flooding back. The rear of Osbrick Hall was definitely behind those hedgerows. See, Julian, there is a front entrance. I knew there was. And we even drove past down that main road. But I didn't see a thing. That's why I got muddled up with myself. Possibly all overgrown by trees or boarded over or something. We can try later. Look up the towpath. I can see a small gap in the hedgerow. He took her hand and they walked up about ten yards and he pulled back some old wooden fencing posts, gone rotten and helped her through the brambly mess. His hand was warm and soft, she thought. Not much calloused do-it-yourself in those mitts, but it felt nice. Gosh damn those prickles but it was worth the scratches. They both stopped and looked across the wet and marshy land. There, quite clear in the distance, the profile of Osbrick Hall stood erect and proud in its own extensive grounds. The light yellowy brown stone construction 
rearing majestically with the sun behind. Somehow, it didn't compute with her memory of 27 years back, and it was much further back than she had realised so the detail wasn't clear. But definitely it was a huge house, and pleasingly symmetrical. Three storeys with a large hip roof and rear gable in the middle, and either side a smaller two-storey extension. Abutting those were some kind of frame structures, possibly former conservatories, but all the glass was missing or broken, as spiky reflections shone back. <clears throat> the main windows had been shuttered or boarded up for security. Horsbrick Hall looked both forlorn and imposing at the same time, certainly invoking an era of past splendour, but obviously now very neglected, as were the grounds and gardens around it. She couldn't speak trying to take it all in. One signature and it would be hers, but what on earth could she do with it? Gosh, Victoria, Julian croaked, his voice crackly and emotive. What a splendid looking place. It really is quite huge. I would estimate at a first glance from the number of windows facing us, there are at least 15 bedrooms and six reception rooms. Now I would say from the map boundaries, there are at least six acres of land too, with woodland. There over to the right and some also to the left. Hard to tell here as the lay of the land is quite undulating and overgrown with an amazing flora. It's beautiful. Come on, I want to get in. Grabbing his hand, a habit she was acquiring to very readily. But he stopped her immediately. Hang on a second. Whilst there is some semblance of a path up there, just look at where it's running through. The ground is very waterlogged. I can see a stream running slowly through those thick reeds or whatever they are, running in as an oxbow, then veering away from the canal. This area has been terribly overgrown for many years. And whilst we're not dressed for clubbing, we're certainly not dressed for this terrain, looking at her smart diesel boots. She immediately turned to him and regretting it instantly said softly, Would you like to go clubbing with me? I bet there was some dancing and partying here once upon a time. He laughed loudly and took his glasses off again, rubbing his eyes. Yes, that would be fun, but shall we try the front door first? She had decided, moving forward. She was going to kiss him there and then. She felt so excited. But in an instant, her nostrils filled up with that awful smell of bad kerosene. She looked around fearfully, her heart pounding, but there was nothing. What's up? Something startled you? Sorry, Julian. It was a rustling, probably a rabbit or something. I agree. Let's get back to the car and have another drive round the lane towards the front. Now we've scientifically identified the compass points. Cheeky. He steadied her again through the hedge, and they slowly walked back with actual skylarks twittering in the background, hand in hand to the beast. As she thought quietly, she really was going to have to tell Julian something about what she had been experiencing. But how would he react? Even the beast looked like he was fretting, waiting quietly at the canal edge. Driving slowly down the main road from the tiny Osbrick village itself, Julian craned his neck as she kept a sharp eye on the traffic. There, Victoria, over to the left, pull over, all hidden with twining ivy and those oak branches. I can just about see a set of rusty, large rusty gates in between some stone pillars. She pulled in alongside the dropped curbing. No wonder they missed it with all the overgrown and, and, and leaves. The main gates hadn't been opened for some time. From the state of the large padlock and chain, but a small walk-in wooden gate locked at the side and leading onto the gravel drive thick with moss and weeds gave evidence of more recent comings and goings. Julian fiddled with the padlock and chain, finally dived into the beast's boot to find a small wheel lever, which with one sharp push pulled up the locked shackle. I thought that might happen, rotted inside. This lock has been on here for at least 20 years looking at all the rust. Let's see if we can drive Beastie inside. Struggling together, they unbolted the heavy gates, cleared the rubbish behind, and with a few hard shoves, pushed them back, creaking loudly on the old hinges. Heaven knows, she mused, when that was last done. 
slowly driving over the moss-ridden gravel. They swept up what was once a magnificent tree-lined drive into a circular driving area and parked in front. She jumped out and stood in front of a very large square stone porch entrance, a flat seating area with balustrades on the high top and fronted by a magnificent 12-foot archway, for which the space inside would have easily sheltered a former travelling coach and four horses. She felt overwhelmed and awestruck at the immensity of the place. Moss-covered plywood boardings were screwed in over all the windows. She fumbled for her antique cigarette case and large brass key, noting the heavy-looking big oak entrance doors. It's going to be dark inside, Victoria. I noticed the halogen torch in the boot. I'll just go and get it, Julian shouted, as she threw him the car keys. Tentatively, she slid the door key in turn into each of the two separate mortise locks and turned both with remarkable ease and a comforting clunk. Turning the heavy round handle, the brass needing some polish, and one door opened smoothly inside some kind of hallway. She was hit by an immediate overall damp musty odour. As expected, it was pitch black inside. The heavy curtains also having been drawn. Julian switched on the torch, swivelling it about as their senses were immediately hit by the sound, the sight of a magnificent sweeping marble staircase, where the whole corridor opened out, leading up each side from ground to first floor. They walked in slowly, staying close together, the torch shining a wide beam over the decorated walls and high ceilings, looking at least 15 feet or more tall. Everywhere appeared remarkably well kept, albeit dusty, the paintwork a mixture of creams, light greens and white. They pushed open a high double set of interior mahogany swinging wooden doors, the original stained glass still evident, and entered a massive square living room with sheeted over chairs and a, and a sofa and further rooms off it, the ceiling even higher, but sporting a beautifully latticed Artex patterning, an original Georgian coving. Decorative pillars, pillars set off the white and light olive green theme of the walls. Unusual wall lights adorned each side of the cast iron fireplace, still with half-burned logs inside and completed with an original tiled, shiny brown patterned mantelpiece, which Julian insisted was late Victorian. Old heavy radiators lined the walls, piping through to adjacent rooms, so some kind of working heating system and a boiler were in evidence. There was a considerable amount of old but well-polished furniture around including glass bookcases, filled with all kinds of ancient-looking tomes, again only slightly dusty, indicating somebody had been coming in occasionally to keep some modicum of cleaning going, probably at least until the window boardings were put up. They peered into a number of adjoining rooms to see a makeshift basic kitchen with an Arga cooker and cupboards and tops sitting on a red quarry tile floor. Finally they found a compact bedroom with a relatively modern ensuite bathroom constructed off it, plus a cosy study through a small door at the end, replete with antique desk, writing paper and the usual knick-knacks including an, an odd cage hanging from a floor stand with a stuffed green parrot inside and a wooden globe atlas. She looked inside, again the sparsely fitted bedroom, gazing wistfully at the large iron framed bed, still with white coverings over the top, but no mattress. It was very clear now how her Uncle William had been living, probably for many years, in his reclusive mood. This whole area was a kind of self-contained bedsit, relatively easy to keep warm once that fire was lit enabling him to probably ignore the rest of the place, so heaven knows what state that must be in. She reckoned that the massive main sitting room could have once been a ballroom for dancing and partying, as small orchestras and jazz bands began playing in her head, forcing her to smile nostalgically. That is a genuine four-poster steampunk bed in there, Julian joked. I write about them, but it doesn't look like it's been tried out for some time, does it? She looked at the bed, then back at him, and pondered for a second, 
when suddenly a loud crash and flapping from somewhere upstairs made them both jump. Jesus, what the fuck was that, Julian? She shouted, feeling an immediate cold fear filling her veins up as her heart started pounding again. Sorry for swearing. He shone the light back out towards the hall. Perhaps one of the window boards has come loose or something and a bird has got in. Let's take a quick peep. Do you think we should? Think logically and scientifically, Victoria, and what makes the most rational sense? Don't believe in ghosties, do you? Proceeding to make loud wooing noises. She felt hot and cold all over. Don't, Julian, please stop it. It, it might make the... Sorry, I mean, it feels sort of disrespectful somehow. He sensed she was anything but appreciative of his humour and stopped. I'm sorry, honestly, I didn't mean to upset you. A silly schoolboy prank and kissed her on the cheek. The banging and flapping started again, only louder then died down. She smiled. Apology accepted this time, after you enders be finished, putting on a lady of the house voice. He laughed. You know, Dr Mackenzie, that rather suits you, as more clattering began. They worked their way carefully up one wide marble stairway, coming round to another long spacious corridor, which continued either side of the house for what seemed like miles. In front of them a smaller staircase led off to the third floor, but with a heavy door in front of it firmly locked. Servants' quarters would have been up there, Julian proffered, both peering at the dark oak door with strange inscriptions over it. They look like painted-on Egyptian hieroglyphics, Victoria added, sliding her fingers over the polished surface. How odd. Perhaps the Mackenzie clan have been global travellers over the years. That was quite common in the 19th century with the rich. At some point in the evolution and history of this house, some people in your family were indeed very rich. Victoria thought immediately about the amount of money set aside in the trust that Aunt Evelyn had casually mentioned still not believing that could be possible. She would keep that strictly to herself. But looking at the grandeur and wealth around them, perhaps it was. But how could she live here for a year to claim it? The place was nigh on impossible for modern day habitation without lots of money behind it. On the other hand, the services of an experienced restorer and self-confessed do-it-yourself fanatic could make the hardship possibly a little more bearable. She sniggered quietly. You've got cheerier again all of a sudden. This place is going to need some work on it, he said wistfully. Thinking of volunteering, Endersby Finnis? Must say there is a likely mounting of interesting history here as rich writer's background material. But it would have to be worth my while, he whispered, grinning mischievously. Let's try these doors. Quickly they discovered they were all locked, except the first two. Inside the first was a massive bedroom with double floor-to-ceiling windows, chock-a-block with antique furniture, exotic carpets, rugs, more books and all kinds of other paraphernalia dumped and left for storage from around the house. The better stuff had sheets carefully drawn over them. As they opened the second door, facing the rear, a flood of light hit their eyes making them both squint and the torch instantly caught the startling inquisitive green eyes of a pair of wood pigeons sat pink-footed atop an old teak wardrobe. They immediately flapped and flew crazily around the room then out of a broken window where the boarding had fallen inside leaving evidence of attempted nesting. Her heart finally stopped pounding and she looked around. Another room full of furniture less than the other one but also she spied a load of old brightly coloured wooden trunks piled high on each other or scattered around together with ornaments, table lamps and small uh, matching coffee tables. She lifted the lid on the first few, stuffed with curtains, clothing, some old dresses and men's clothes. Near the small Adam fireplace Inside one initially locked, but the key fortunately still in it, was filled with old papers. She took the first paper out carefully. It was some scientific treatise, 
written by one who couldn't make out as the bottom was faded, but recognised some of the chemical formulae immediately, despite the quaint old-fashioned English handwriting. They were definitely coal tar derivatives, families of dyes which could be seen clearly from the pattern of carbon, hydrogen and nitrogen atoms relating to aniline and benzene, drawings of distillation apparatus, and practical diagrams were carefully sheathed in between. Oh my goodness, research papers, details of experiments, results all dated between 1860 and 1866. There must have been really interesting science work going on there. I can't wait to go through all these. I must handle them carefully, she exclaimed, her eyes wild with pure joy as she replaced them gently. Julian sauntered over, having unsheeted a beautiful antique walnut desk, which looked to him like 18th century woodwork and marquetry, and shone the torch into a deep drawer to see a great mass of paper documents, old ledgers and diaries of all shapes and sizes. This is astounding in here, Victoria, and probably worth a small fortune. Who lived here last, do you know? The house belonged to my Uncle William, elder brother of my Aunt Evelyn, from whom I learned of all this family inheritance and background bombshell for the first time yesterday. He died six months ago, a total recluse, aged 103. William and my father were apparently twins, but they were all estranged for over 80 years, until Evelyn broke the spell and visited William three years ago before he died. And your father? He was a lot older than you, wasn't he? It's all a long story, she sighed. I need to explain, but later. There's a huge amount I don't know. Hmm, he replied thoughtfully, before going over to the fireplace and picking up a heavy poker. She looked up, immediately feeling a huge wave of trepidation. No, not to batter you to death, you'll be pleased to know, he jested again as she glared. Temporary hammer, I'll just go and tack that board back in from the inside, keep out the winged squatters. She continued looking through the papers, all on the topic of coal tar dyes, when she caught him staring hard out of the open window. My word, there's some brazen so-and-sos out there. There's a guy on a black horse and a woman on a white horse, slowly trotting in your drive towards the woods. There must be a bridle path to the road or something. Odd, though, they could be just out of my novels, the way they're dressed and that purple shawl wrapped around her head at this time of year. Weird. She jerked her head up out of the trunk sharply, her eyes wide and her stomach on fire. Oh, Julian, you can see it. You can see it too. Oh, thank God for that. It just isn't me, then. Oh, Julian, Julian, and ran to him, throwing her arms wildly and tightly around his body, her head buried in his chest, chuntering ten to the dozen, tears flowing down her cheeks. Jesus Christ, Victoria, hey, what's all this about? Hey, hey, come on, slow down, stop, 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 and gently lifted her arms off, looking at her straight in the eye. She dabbed her eyes with a piece of red velvet curtain covering it with black mascara, and stood aside, suddenly embarrassed at her own uncharacteristically emotional reaction. She glanced out of the window. There was absolutely nothing, and it dawned on her. The mystery woman in the purple shawl was no longer alone. She had a companion. Who, what, and why? And in particular, why was Julian so special? I'm sorry, Julian. There's something else I need to explain. Well, something... I don't want you to think I'm raving mad, but all in Osbrick Hall is not quite as it seems. I can see that, he replied and grinned, and I love it, a real 19th century mystery. Or could it even be a supernatural mystery? This is manna from heaven for a steampunk writer. Actually, she replied somberly, I believe now something has happened here, something perhaps not very pleasant. I need to find out. Well, Dr. Mackenzie Watson, Mr. Endersby Finnis Holmes is here at your disposal. That is, if you want him. She laughed, feeling the tension, drained away. You're really daft, aren't you? Yes, I do. It was his turn. He wanted to kiss her badly, looking at her coquettishly turned-up mouth. 
those gorgeous staring dark eyes. He leaned forward. When a loud crash stopped them both in a microsecond, as a tall wardrobe at the far end suddenly fell over lopsidedly against the wall. They both stared at it, dazed. Then he peered at the base, all torn away. Hmm, bit of woodworms got to that. Have to watch there isn't any more. I could do with some air, Julian, she sighed. I think we've seen enough for today and that torch is fading. As she turned the key in the second lock and they walked towards the beast, that odd feeling of total peace and tranquillity, always after some sighting, suffused her entire body. Julian was fiddling about with the bag which he had been wearing over his shoulder. She looked over the breathtaking view, seeing Parbold Hill, clearly and unencumbered, rising up in the distance with the dark Pennine Mountains behind, rolling green and golden fields in front, interspersed with clumps of dotted trees, occasional farmhouses and the old barn. It was quiet, tranquil and inviting. So inviting, it was desperately eating her insides out. Hey, what are you rooting about for in that man bag of yours? Catch! He pulled out two cans of coke and threw a one which he fielded with aplomb, having had years of practice with Abby. And that's not all. Which do you prefer? A couple of bacon butties or a cheese sandwich and a portion of salad? Oh, and an apple, placing them on the bonnet. I thought you might get peckish sometime. Wasn't sure what the plans were, as I thought we were going to be floating off into the Irish Sea on a ferry. She was mightily impressed with his caring culinary domesticity, especially as no man in the last ten years had ever done likewise. In fact, not since Antoine in the commune. Picking up the carefully wrapped cheese sandwich in aluminium foil and a compact Tupperware box of fresh salad, she replied gaily, I'll leave you to the cholesterol buster, thanks. Fine, he said, staring ahead towards the wooded area where the mythical horseman and woman were said to have been heading. Tell you what, it's a lovely afternoon. Shall we just do a quick walk over there and see what there is and eat our sandwiches? She was as intrigued as him. Yeah, why not? No hurry. There's some kind of meadow there as well. I think too it's time to fill you in on what I haven't filled you in on. They began to wander over when he grabbed her arm and pointed to the dusty ground. Look, there's hoof prints. I was right. Must have been somebody locally in fancy dress. Clearly identifiable. There were, as she noted, the distinctive markings of the shoes and the large shape of the hooves petering out into the grass. But there's no horse muck. True. Mm. Perhaps they were a bit constipated, he replied in a deep voice, studying the ground with intense determination. She giggled stupidly. He was serious and quietly insane without a doubt and becoming quite adorable. They soon reached the edge of the wood and took in another magnificent view as she realised how well sighted the house had been three or four hundred years ago, sitting on a small hill with a stunning 360 degree perspective. She hadn't realised, hidden initially by the gable from the front, there was a circular domed tower with tiny windows high up on the roof between the two chimneys, offering a likely amazing vista of the countryside for miles. She was dying to climb up to it and thought of all the practicalities needed doing, not least getting some power on in the place. Julian, how are we going to get the electrics working? Though I even noticed some old gaslight still on the wall too. Good question. I noticed as we went out, there's a small porter-type reception area near the inside of the front door. Probably the first port of manned call for receiving guests and then tending to the horses. I saw a meter on the wall, so it should be straightforward to get connected by the electricity board. Although what those radiators run on for heating is anyone's guess. Oil, I would think. Maybe even coal. Possible, or solid fuel. Depends how old the boiler is. Look, there's a pond over there. Shall we sit down and eat the food by it? Victoria suddenly remembered. Aunt Evelyn had casually mentioned a large pond, a focal point for fast family life, where she painted the water lilies with Uncle William fishing. As she reached the edge, next to a cornfield, it was exactly as her aunt had described, and truly remarkable. Water lilies of all kinds of gorgeous colours 
where indeed unfolded between large green leaves, and she saw the shape of a couple of large fish swimming through the stalks, perch or maybe even a pike, quiet, tranquil and so very romantic. As she was sat on the grass, munching through her apple, the jackets on the ground in the warm afternoon sun and daydreaming, he took her by surprise with his arm, planting firmly around her waist. She turned, closed her eyes, and their lips finally met in a passionate embrace, his kisses warm and sensuous. She had been dying to do that over the whole of the last 24 hours if she was being truly honest. A very tiny rustle behind him caught her attention, and she opened one eye, looking over his shoulder, whilst he continued gently, unabated, and in another world. And she was there, alone, a couple of feet away, wearing exactly the same outfit and purple shawl, and grinning as she did in the fish and chip shop. The woman waved her arm playfully as if to say, don't stop on my account. She closed her eyes again and continued to enjoy his kissing, but now sensing phase one of their long-awaited embrace was coming to an end. Phase two she would need to think about, and certainly not now. He withdrew and gazed into her eyes. Her emotions mixed between lust and trepidation, when the sound, loud and clear, resounded across the pond from somewhere in the woods on the other side. What's that, Julian? Can you hear it? Yes, it's a horse galloping away somewhere. They listened as the clip-clopping gradually faded into the distance, and the tranquillity and total quiet, except for some birds twittering, returned. She held his hands and said, she was here, behind you, grinning happily like she did in the chippy. Who? The woman in the purple shawl you saw earlier. And a horse by the sound of it. Sorry, did you say chippy? Time for the full story. Drink your coke, then I want to take you to a garden centre not far away which has a comfortable and lovely cafeteria. I'm going to treat you to a meal out tonight because you've been absolutely wonderful today. Approved, Dr Mackenzie Watson. Serious sleuthing starts tomorrow. My word, that methane suddenly smells a lot, he murmured, looking at the pond. Er, uh, methane is colourless and odourless. It's rotten vegetation you're muddled with. Common misconception. But what you're smelling is neither. It's coal tar distilled aniline. Aniline? Hmm. They got up quietly and walked hand in hand back to the beast. As Julian prattled on aimlessly about the things they could find in the garden centre to help restore the place. End of chapter 7